Welcome to the eighth episode of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. I am your host, Michael Haig. I talk, write, research, and do artwork about sexual ethics in general and polyamory in specific. And I've been practicing polyamory for probably 10 years now. And I am Sarah Lucas. I have been practicing polyamory for about 18 months. I'm a student at a local university doing research on consensual non-monogamy. And I'm Mandy Conant. I'm the director of Atlanta Poly Weekend, and I have been practicing polyamory for 17 years now. All right, so before we get started today, I have some personally great news. We've had our first write-in comment. Yay! I guess a lot of us are hearing buzz about this in person or to people that we interact with, but nobody, you know, despite our, our requests, ever actually writes us on any of our platforms, SoundCloud, Facebook, or email. And finally, someone has, and they sent in an amazing topic idea. So next week, we'll be doing that as the podcast. For all of those who are listening, again, this podcast is relatively new. If you want to get your own questions answered, if you want to participate, if you want to help build the community, then I would say now is the time to get those those questions in because my hope is that one day, many years from now, you'll you'll be much more hard pressed to get our direct attention out of other people responding to this podcast. Yeah, we'll be we'll be too we busy produce. for you in a few years, so you better get it in yeah. now. <laughs> I actually, I've been getting some feedback through PMs over Facebook, and I do want to give a, a shout out. Thank you so much for, for listening and for giving us, giving me your feedback. It is very much appreciated. Thank you. For those of you that don't know, the Probably Polly page, I manage that in such a way that it basically functions like my Facebook. So if you message it, you'll just get me directly. So it's interesting that all the people that promote this, like when Mandy shares, she gets a lot of PMs about it. When Sarah shares, she gets a lot of PMs about it. And then I don't share because I'm producing it on the actual web page, and then nobody responds to it. So <laughs> like, if you want to get my attention, if you'd like to talk to me about it, that's where you can do that, and I'm very responsive. As are we. We're very responsive. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. I, I, I assume they know you're responsive. They're messaging you, <laughs> and think, you're responding. I think you just sound jealous. <laughs> I am. I'm very jealous. I'm very jealous. Although I guess if I listen to this podcast, I would probably message one of you as well. Aww. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> Today's topic is about romance, and specifically about objectification in romance, and where our ideas and our conceptions of romance really come from when we critically look at them. The genesis for this topic was actually a conversation that I was having with Mandy, where we were talking about whether or not romance was damaging or intrinsically damaging to relationships. And it's not that I, I took the position that it was, it's more that often when I see something that I haven't critically examined before and something casts it into a suspicious light, I think that that's a great opportunity to go and examine it because that's how you find your unexamined beliefs is by looking at the things that you don't think need critical examination. And I'm gonna automatically come from a suspicious position of anything that is given high status in any heteronormative, cis-normative, or mononormative structure, and especially one that's given high status in all three. And in, I don't think there's anything that has a higher status than romance in those structures in our culture. Well, sex, maybe. <laughs> this is true. I mean... <laughs> but if you think about narratives, because narrative is what needs questioning, right? Narrative is how you get taught what you're supposed to really do. Right. 
True. And if you look at the narrative that's out there, from Disney movies to every song you've ever heard on the radio, <laughs> yes. uh, I mean, like, if you just listen to songs on the radio, 94% of songs, like, someone actually did a statistic, I forgot what it was, but it was insane. It was in the 90% or whatever it is about yes. romance. Yeah, I actually personally am careful about how frequently I listen to music, different types of music, because I'm like, okay... I don't want to be thinking super romantically right now. I've got other stuff to take care of. I need to stop listening to this particular artist that sings almost completely romantic songs because it changes the way I think about things and the way I, I function during the day. So it's interesting. I think people, especially you know, of the sort of gendered male persuasion in our culture, definitely talk a lot about how sex is what's important and romance is like a, a fake way they use to get in to get sex. But I think the, the you know the primary narrative is around romance because I mean that's the whole idea when people say well we don't want gay marriage because we want to keep marriage between a man and a woman they're talking about romance right they're talking about the sort of the sacred bond the living forever the eternal love the covenant with God there's a difference in people what they say and the underlying emotional connection mm-hmm. to it so I'm not going to say that that's not sex. But at least the way that it's coded in the discussion is about romance, because romance is what has the moral street value. Right. But, I mean, even even when you discuss romance, like, sex at the end is, is the connotation. That's yeah. your, mm-hmm. your end game. When you dream up this big romantic night, it ends in sex. When you dream up a romantic day, your date with your partner, it ends in sex. That's Romance is really just the means to that goal. Right, and romance is how we, how we desexualize sex in a Puritan environment. Exactly. Hmm. Right, so if you want to tell people, like, like, sex is awesome, but you can't say sex is awesome, you say romance is awesome. My partner's so romantic. That's a very good way to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> He's a great romantic. <laughs> <laughs> mm, them flowers. Mm. Actually, all the romance. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know that's that's not true in far as it's not true as far as narrative coding though. So look at every Disney movie, primarily aimed at children, and it is, with the exception of The Lion King, entertainingly pure romance with no sex. The movie always ends before yeah. sex even happens. You know, and if yeah. you don't know about sex, if you're five, six, seven, eight, okay, at eight I knew, but but you know if you're four, <laughs> five, six, uh, maybe not. You know, and you watch Cinderella for the first time, you're not thinking. Oh, and then as soon as the cutscene happened, they took their clothes off. No, they all end in marriage. Yeah, or a kiss. Right, which becomes that. I understand that. But I'm saying as a, as a young child, the narrative doesn't include that. It's implied to adults because that's what right. a marriage ends yeah. up being. So as an adult, the romantic narrative includes sex. It, like a, as we mature, it starts including Correct, sex yeah. as well. Is what you're saying? Yeah. But it, it, it's always left unset, and it's important that mm-hmm. it's left unset. Is it? I think. Yeah. yeah how, will you elaborate on your, okay. your idea? <laughs> well, for, well, firstly, we know from just so many studies. Sorry, whenever I say we, I've had this question before. Whenever I say we know from, I mean there's a body of evidence you could go look up if you decided to go look at something. I always thought it was Michael and his personalities. <laughs> me and my personality we. think it's like me as a collective. The royal we. It's the royal we. I, I think that much of myself. When we look at the body of research, the way to make something the most taboo is just not to talk about it at all. Yep. So if you talk about when we had the lowest rate of extramarital sex, so not cheating, but sex before marriage, it was before we talked about it at all. Once you introduce sex ed that's abstinence only, incidences of sex go up in an area. Hmm. So even if the narrative is don't do it, it's awful, it actually becomes less taboo than not mentioning it. So it's like we ha- we have to mm. give them the idea. 
Well, it gives them permission. So it's like there's a really weird longitudinal study where there was a woman, I can't remember her name now, who tried to commit suicide and, you know, thankfully did not succeed and uh, went on to recover and then toured the country going to schools and talking about how you shouldn't commit suicide. And then they studied the school she visited over 20 years and it increased suicide attempts by like 78%. So it was like they were, they were getting ideas, basically. Well, it was more like, oh, it's not just me. So if you're oh. sitting around thinking about suicide and no one ever mentions suicide, you think, well, that's just crazy. Nobody wants to kill themselves. Oh, I see. But I when see. someone comes and says to the whole class, guys, don't commit suicide. I know you all want to. Then you're like, oh, well, I'm not crazy. That's normal. Everybody feels this way. So and so it validates... So it makes it socially acceptable? Yeah. It validates the idea that it makes sense to commit suicide, that it's not just you. It's oh. not just you being crazy. And the same sort of thing happens with sex, right? So if nobody ever mentions sex at all, like, it's there's so little information, it's almost scary. Like, the stories of people in the 50s taking, like, needles to bed with them on their wedding night because they didn't know what even, like, a penis was going to look like, that kind of thing. Or not being able to have sex for the first two weeks, so they were so terrified. Because no one had ever said anything about it but as soon as you start saying things about it it becomes part of your world and your experience and then you you start thinking about it and you start experimenting with it and you know it's a thing you're going to do eventually in a way that people before we really had sex out of any stripe didn't know that in the same sense like they kind of knew it but it was never talked about so they didn't know what that even meant right yeah okay it's important that children's stories don't even hint at sex as being part of the reason for the interest. Oh, okay. We're talking about children's mm-hmm. stories. Well, any any story, any narrative that does well, that. Well, you, ahead, you like the statement I, I believe that you made was something along the lines of we need to keep mm-hmm. sex. We, we can't mention sex when it comes to romance. What I was trying to say was that most stories of romance, I would say by, by like statistical average of romance stories I've ever seen, leave sex more implied than discussed. Uh, yes, I would totally agree with that. Yeah. The majority of them, like the preponderance, I mean, you know, 54% to 60%, whatever, just don't mention it. They just assume you know that that's okay. what's going to happen. And what we're talking about is like yeah. songs in the media and children's movies. Okay. Sure, sure. Songs, movies. Yeah, I mean, so obviously there's very specific movies that have that and, you know, we're moving into a culture that's got more of that, which is, I think, good because it normalizes that that's part of what mm-hmm. that is about. But I think it's important that they leave that out, and it's important they leave that out because it it tries to separate romance from sex in the explicit sense, so that you have to tie it together implicitly in your own mind, which is going to have a different outcome than if they said, and this is what that leads to, or here's how that looks, or here's what mm-hmm. you should expect from that. I personally find that every song on the radio right now has some sexual element to it. I was thinking of a disturbed, uh, disturbed song I was, uh, <laughs> I was listening to the other day, Down With the Sickness, yeah. and I'm like, oh yeah, that's one I know right off the top of my head that has nothing to do with sex. Yeah, I, I can't think yeah. of one that's playing on the radio like right now on your like top 40 station oh, yes. that doesn't have some sort of sexual element to it, whether it's a touch you know, or somebody saying I want this or, or something along those lines. Like I personally don't find a lot of romance in today's music. Uh, good point. I, what I classify as romance. When yeah. we were children, I think there were a good handful of years. Sure. And of course, prior to that, where pop music and, and radio music did have a sense of, right. of romance. Mm-hmm. Celine Dion. Oh, okay. I see. You know I what see I mean? We that got, kind we of got separated. That's what I'm talking about because that's what constructed our sense of romance. So, like, our kids are going to have a very okay. different sense of romance than we do because they're going to grow up in this. Very so, like, different. kids who are yes. middle school very different. and then, you know, younger have a very different sense. I mean, I'm assuming that most of our listeners are, you know, over 18. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're not, but I think that's right. <laughs> 
And I think if you're, you know, over 18, you do have a significant memory of romance songs from when you were young that were yeah. not as sexual. But you are you are okay. right, yeah. And I, I don't, you know, i got to say, sadly, my memory for those things isn't the best anyway. I'm not so good at pop culture. And for the last two years, all I've listened to is children's nursery songs <laughs> on the CDs that I have for my son. So <laughs> I am really out of touch. I, I, I don't even listen to the radio when I'm alone anymore because the CD is just already on. And I'm just like, whatever. Wheels on the bus go round and round. You know. See, I have, I have two middle schoolers and I have mm-hmm. a young adult. And, uh, you know, all three of my children have a very, very different... Right view sure. on romance and isn't that interesting but it's great it's great to me because my adult son his sense of romance is is always been what been what i've seen as romance like come home and wash the dishes because that's amazing and nothing makes me want to hop into bed with you quicker than if you clean my kitchen <laughs> you know <laughs> so like acts of service for him are super romantic sure so you know that's which is functional (laughs) to me as opposed to like roses and picking a girl up at seven and having her home Mm -hmm. by 10 30 and you know like the what you know what we were taught as romance is very very different than what kids these days (laughs) think you know kids these days I must admit, I don't even know exactly what to classify as romance. I remember I had a relationship, a long-term relationship for a while. He would ask me, will you be more romantic with me? And I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, do you want me to bring you flowers? I don't know what you mean by that. And I still, I don't know exactly, like, what to classify as being romantic. Well, for sure, we want to talk about the larger sense of what American, you know, general population thinks of when they think of romance mm-hmm. do you have like a webster's definition do you have a webster's definition i could that'd yeah. be weird to or do. something <laughs> i think that if we start with like an actual sure. that might be good because i like honestly i i don't know as we're discussing this i'm like okay well is it like the five love languages is it like the princess syndrome that i grew up with that with watching the disney movies like what is it i think it's anything that makes you feel important or loved or anything that gives you the sense that you're special to your partner okay yeah and when i I will also say in our culture that romance is the kind of things that people do when they're experiencing new relationship energy Mm, bundled into a claim that that lasts forever oh that's a very good descriptor i feel no, I disagree. Okay. I disagree. All right, go tell us, it. Mandy. <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> because I, like, I, you know, one of my husbands I've been with for, like, seven, eight years, we're well past NRE. And we sure. definitely fall into NRE again and again. I, I guess because my definition, maybe, of romance is, is different, that I feel like he is romantic from time to time still, and it doesn't... He's different, though. I have two very, very different husbands from most men though because like jerry doesn't associate romance with sex usually romance is just doing something nice for me whether it's running me a bath when i've had a hard day at work or cooking me dinner or you know hey babe let's go to a movie just you and i tonight like that's to me that's his form of romance and and i think it does have something to do with your love languages sarah i think that those are wrapped into it because that's of course your language of romance as well my other husband is is very he's much more like 
textbook 90s R&B romance. He's more... See, and you know what I mean, though, right? Like, he's more rose petals on the bed and soft music and candlelit. And, you know, like, that's more his speed of romance. <laughs> he's straight boys to men. Like, he's... You know, it's just... <laughs> he has a very different sense of romance, I guess. Um, and he doesn't see like doing the dishes as romantic. He sure. sees it very differently. Whereas Jerry's like, I did the dishes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it's just. So, I mean, obviously, you know, there's going to be a wide range of what people are going to individually consider mm -hmm. romantic. Um, Absolutely. I'm sort of aiming at the cultural narrative around romance as opposed to what I would say is a better sense of romance. What's useful is romance. The instant definition on, you know, Google, what does romance means is, a feeling of excitement and mystery associated with love, followed by a quality or feeling of mystery, excitement, and remoteness from everyday life. So the the general yeah. definition is definitely not going to fall in line with your like no you know your sense. And if you go and look up the word romance, like you think about how it's used in other contexts, like Merriam-Webster, right? Like Merriam-Webster talks about like uh, uh, romance, like a like tales of romance, right? It's like the romance era, something such as an extravagant story that lacks basis in fact. Okay. An emotional attraction that belongs to heroic, epic adventure activity, which is all the kind of things you feel during NRE energy. A love affair, you know, and then he goes to the next type of definition. So as a verb, to exaggerate or invent detail or incident, to try to influence or curry favor by lavishing personal attention and flattery, to carry on a love affair. So the, the general sense of romance in day-to-day -day English usage, dictionary usage, and if you think about, like, the Romantic era... Um, what a romance novel is, or like a romance novel, right? Every romance novel is straight up an NRE Seriously. book. No romance novel is like, you came home okay. and did oh, the dishes, yeah. it's great, right? Like, true. I mean, not none, but very few. Yeah, Right. But I think that's part of the problem that, that is today is that we think of, of romance as it has to be this, like it, it's, it's extravagant. Mm -hmm. When I hear the sentence, the problem of today, I think it means, it sounds to me like it wasn't as much a problem before, but I would say that romance started as being purely over-the-top, exaggeratory, exaggerated NRE-type stuff, and it's gotten better as we've gone on, but there's still enough of that hanging around that it's problematic. Did I say today? I meant the problem with our understanding of romance, yes. I think. Yes, okay, I got you. I didn't, I didn't mean today. I apologize. No, no, that's fine. I mean, I just wanted to clarify, yeah. Uh, I'm doing that whole, like, kids today thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Millennials. Right. Well, and that's a... That's a you know, that's a well-documented fallacy as well, that we actually have a, a sense where if we think about the past, it seemed better in the past. Like, I don't mm, think we yeah. used to do that, but it, you actually did used to do it worse. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it wasn't better in the past by yeah. any means. I think it actually, we've actually come a long way as to yeah. understanding what, that other things can be romantic as well. I'm thinking about, like, the romance narrative that I got as a kid such that when I started dating, it was all over-the-top, knightly chivalry, I'm going to save you from your entire life. We're going to run off and rule the world together. My heart-pounding, world-crashing emotion for you is never going to end. They lived happily ever after. Every one of those stories ends at the height of mm -hmm. the NRE excitement. Yeah. Or they haven't even started to figure out things like what living in the same room feels like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or spending 24 <laughs> hours together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was a great line that my mom told me when we were, I was younger, which was, she had been secretly living with my dad for about a year before they got married because that was not socially acceptable when they were young. And oh. after they got married, my grandpa, you know, we came, my grandpa and grandpa came to visit about a month later and he asked my dad, so how's living with Karen going? He goes, 
going well. He goes, so you lived with her before you got married then. (laughs) 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 All right. (laughs) That always is stressful when you first start. There's always trying to work that out, uh, at least if you're past the, the new relationship energy. And they've been dating for years, so. They were so far past that. So then we're, you're, we're using romance in NRE then. Is that is that where we're focusing? Just to have a discussion, you've got to have sort of a core usage. So if you're differentiating from that, just specify. So it's not okay. that we're not going to talk about the other types of romance, because those are the ones I'm actually more interested in, because we're talking about how it can be useful, how it can be healthy, how we can integrate it into our lives. But I, I need to start from the cultural conception so that people aren't thinking that's what we mean when we say... Well, here's how romance can be good. Okay. To go back to where romance comes from originally, you think about the Greek and Roman ideas of love, right? So even our word polyamory comes out of, well, it's Greek poly and then amory, mm-hmm. Roman. But amory is uh, from amor, which is Aries, right? Which is, in Greek, that would be eros. Oh, so yes, eros, in, yeah. in Greek, there's seven different, in the Greek language, there's seven different types of love, and eros is... The erratic type of first, early, crazy NRE love. Like, it's just straight up the definition of NRE. It was to be, you know, and they thought that you should fear that, that you should run from it, that you should hate it. Like, that's why they they talk about Cupid shooting you, Cupid getting you, right? That that's the worst kind of love, that it's not maintainable, that it is, it deceives you, it kills kingdoms. It's the kind of love that caused the Trojan War to happen. So it was not considered a good thing. And that's the word that we use as the basis for the kind of romance we talk about. And while we now use love to mean all seven, we mostly use it in our culture to mean that one, but we've made it good somehow. So we talk about it like it's good mm-hmm. when it may not be. There's definitely people in the poly community that feel the same way about NRE still. I'm, I'm with Mandy. Like, I honestly, I'm like, ugh, stupid NRE. Like, it, I just feel so crazy. Ooh, no, I personally love it. Uh, <laughs> oh, my bad. <laughs> Sarah and I are on the same page. We're, we're like, no, this makes us insane. And I, I do. I get crazy. And I don't yeah, like it. I mean, it's fantastic, but it's awful. I love it. I want to get way past that. <laughs> if I could, I if I could skip that, I would always skip that. I hate that. that. I, I'm, not, I'm not that far into it, but yes, it is, it's annoying when you, you can't get things done. I'm just going to quickly go through the other types of love because that may be helpful linguistically for us. To be able to point those out, like in other cases, it's easier, I find, to describe things that way. Do you mean the other, uh, the seven definitions of love? From Greece, yeah. The seven, like, Greek types of love. Seven types of love. So, so Eros is the, yeah. um, is specifically erotic love, but basically, through the description, they didn't have the biochemical knowledge we have today, but you could basically call it NRE. If you, we said that, like, a million times. If you don't know what that means, it means new relationship energy, and it is the biochemical cocktail that your brain doses you with when you're exposed to a new love interest. So then is philia, which is sort of like friendship, but it's mostly about sort of reciprocity, so sort of shared goodwill. So like if there's someone that you admire or they do good things for you. So this is the kind of thing like doing the dishes. So philia would technically, under under like the Greek arrangement, would be the kind of love you get out of dish doing. Next one is storge, which is familial love. It's love born of familiarity. So it's someone that you've always been around, you know, the kind of how you sort of grow fond of people that you've been around for a lot of time. And it's usually inner family, but it could be a friend that's been around forever. Maybe a coworker. Right. Maybe a coworker. And it's also in theory where like the Greeks have this sort of sense that loves float into one another. Right. So hopefully the whole point of new relationship energy or Eros is to make you be around someone so long that you develop 
Storge. So by the mm. so by the time you start realizing they're annoying, you're also attached to them. Right. Absolutely. Right. And then <laughs> and so then the attachment gets you over that, so that you can more easily <laughs> have romantic relationships where it might be harder to do that if you if you had to start with actually just liking the person as a person without that. And so the Greeks would say that you know the three uh, Storge, Philia, and um, Eros would work together. So Eros would push you into Storge, but it would also push you into to Philia because there'd be a reciprocity. You're getting something out of them, sex right and the relationship and building things together and then those would all funnel back and forth and hopefully renew your eros which would allow you to continue together and overcome like hiccups in storge or philia mm-hmm. i like having a lot of extra language for this it's so much easier than just like the romance <laughs> it totally does lots of labels yes need a label maker <laughs> we're not going to come up to this one a lot agape is the next one and that's just universal love so if you're like i love everyone i love you because you're a human i'm concerned about animals just because they're alive which is a great thing to have, by the way, but is not sort of the... Yes, the, your fish. The, yeah. <laughs> your beta fish. All right, so now I have to tell the beta fish Yay. story because everyone else is going to go, what's the beta fish story? So <laughs> the very short version of the story is a neighbor asked us to fish sit, and my wife said yes, and I didn't even know, so I'm outside one day, and he and his son walk up with a fish, and I'm like, take this fish, we'll come back in a week and a half for it. And the, the, it's a beta fish in like one of those tiny half-gallon bowls, and he doesn't. He gives me food and the beta fish, and that's it. So he gives me the fish and says, you know, the fish doesn't need the chlorinator. Fish doesn't need that. I like that fish doesn't have a name. Fish doesn't need that. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure betas need the chlorinator. I'm pretty sure everything needs the chlorinator. Chlorine is literally toxic. You know, so I was also like, I, I, I remember reading an article a while ago that you shouldn't keep beta fish like this, that it's actually harmful to the beta fish or inhumane, whatever you want to call it. So anyway, I spent two days on the internet reading about it, and it turned out that this is obviously really bad. They need a higher temperature, they need the chlorinator, they need at least four gallons of water. And the guy had also said that he bought the fish for his son, and his son was no longer interested, so if I wanted to keep it, I could. And he just never came back to the fish. So I ended up <laughs> keeping the fish, and I got it a bigger house. And it's a five-gallon tank and stuff. So it's going to have a, a happy place to live, hopefully, now. Now fish has a nice house. <laughs> right, now fish has a nice house. But I just, I, I feel bad for, I, I, I'm concerned about it. I'm not even feel bad. I'm concerned about it as a living being that's mm-hmm. in my care. It's the kind of universal love. You should name your fish Agape. Actually, uh, that would be interesting. I named my fish Nietzsche, actually. Nietzsche? I didn't name him until today. I see. But... What, what is Nietzsche? Okay, so Nietzsche is actually pronounced Nietzsche. Oh, okay. The philosopher Frederick Nietzsche. Yeah. Like the most famous existentialist. Yeah, I know him. You named your fish after a philosopher? <laughs> I named my fish after an existentialist philosopher. Of course I did. <laughs> That's so, That's so Michael. Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Nietzsche's my favorite. Five is uh, Ludus. Ludus is playful and uncommitted love. So that's one that is also comes up, I think, a lot in polyamory and, and non-monogamy is people who are committed to that kind of idea of love. So, you know, this can even be something as simple as like when like flirting, like I love to flirt with anybody, even people that I could not possibly see myself being with. Flirting is just fun for me. It's an, I enjoy it. Yes. Jerry calls those flirtationships. <laughs> flirtationships. Yeah, exactly. That sort of stuff yep. would fall under ludus. He's got like 80 of them. But, but also <laughs> conjugating. So people that like, you know, like swingers, for example, who are, well, swinger, not all swingers, but the swingers who specifically are focused on not developing feelings, but just having a, yes. a temporary sexual liaison. That would be kind of Ludus play. It's important that Ludus here obviously can go hand in hand with Eros, but doesn't necessarily include Eros mm-hmm. automatically. So you could have people that you don't even develop new relationship energy for, like a one-night session, that kind of thing. Pragma is practical love founded on reason or duty. 
So this is what you think of as traditional arranged marriage. And pragma was one of the favored forms of love in ancient Greece, obviously, which is why they had arranged marriage. But it also is going to include the the really common entry to polyamory of one of the people has cancer and they're still in love, but they can't be with their partner sexually and they don't want their partner to suffer from not having sexual and romantic contact. And they say, well, you should go out and date somebody else, but we'll still have our, our family arrangement, for instance. That's a sort of a pragma hmm. kind of love. All right, so the last one is philosha, and that's self-love, which in, in the Greek sense can be healthy or unhealthy, so it's either, you know, confidence or hubris. And, and when, you know, in researching, you know, this, like I said, that not only did we linguistically choose to take eros, eros or amory or aries as the basis, but it, culturally we took that as the basis for love yes. in the modern era, yeah. ever since the Romantic era, basically. These other words are all the words that you're going to use to describe the other types of romance that you have with your partners that you're like, those are good. Mm -hmm. And that's also another problem is that I feel like I want to use romance as sort of the adjective form of love, mm -hmm. but that's definitely not the default sort of definition of romance. Although, I mean, it did show, it did show up, right? So like in like the fourth or fifth definition, it would be like expressions of love. Right. So I think as, yeah, by romance, we're talking here mostly about expressions of love. So I think we could almost say love. Okay. I think that pretty well covers the background on where we are culturally with love and where we're at using words here okay. throughout this podcast. So let's go on to, to this idea of why I'm concerned about narratives, especially early childhood narratives. Mm -hmm. One of the articles that I was looking at in preparing for this podcast is a 2009 article by Karen A. Martin called Normalizing Heterosexuality, Mothers' Assumptions, Talk, and Strategies with Young Children. And it's all about the language and cultural structure that is heteronormative, cisnormative, mononormative patriarchal that's, that's built in to a child's everyday life experience as a child mm -hmm. and how that introduces them to all those normative constructs. Right. She found that there are basically three strategies that most parents use in dealing with children's uh, potential sexuality. That most parents don't actually even think about their kid's sexuality unless they see signs that they think indicate they may not be heteronormative, cisnormative, mononormative. Hmm. And then if they see that, then one group of people responds by trying to be more neutral in their term usage and, and give their kids options. One group responds by ignoring it and hoping, as they self-describe it, for the best outcome, which would be that they end up being cisnormative, heteronormative, mononormative. The third group actively tries to indoctrinate against. So once they notice that the, the child may not have the parameters they want, they actively fight it. Hmm. Also, interestingly, for confirmation of heteronormativity, parents mostly cite children's play that in no other context would they take as being an actual description of the child. So they'll say things like, well, my kid can't be gay. He already has, like, 15 girlfriends and always talks about how, you know, he's excited about this other girl or the other, and he's, like, seven, so I'm sure he's fine. <laughs> like, yeah, your kid also thinks he's going to be an astronaut and a dinosaur rider, <laughs> but, like, you don't take those dinosaur cowboy. forms of play seriously. the technical <laughs> term <laughs> is dinosaur cowboy. Dinosaur cowboy. <laughs> it, is, it is dinosaur cowboy. And, of course, those are the things he's going to say because it, what models does he have? If all of his Disney stories are a guy having girlfriends, he's going to have girlfriends because children play at being adults. They mirror the behavior they see. And so weird that, you know, people will totally, I mean, my baby was a day old and people were like, he's going to get all the chicks. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a weird thing to say. I remember you telling me he that might... when I first met you. It is a right. really odd thing. I mean, he might decide he is a chick. Yeah. Like, I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Although he could do that and still go after girls but you know i mean yeah seriously <laughs> it's just it's just a really weird assumption they then worry about 
non-normative outcomes based on violations of gendered standards. So a boy wearing wanting to wear a dress, wanting to play dress up as a female character, wanting to play with traditionally female toys will result in a parent being concerned that they're not going to be the right gender. And here are lots of air quotes for right. This is a study of average people. I'm not endorsing this perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the way that parents deal with their kids, though, is that most parents, the average American parent, talks to their child on the assumption that they are cisnormative, heteronormative, mononormative, until one of those is violated by the child's behavior and direct contradiction. Hmm. And so they're constantly being told, this is who you already are, in the same way that they're told what their name is. You know, so my, my now two-year-old meets people and they go, oh, you're going to get all the girls, aren't you? And so he thinks that's a, you know, so of course he thinks that's a good thing mm-hmm. and he thinks that's important. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fairly open-minded parent. I, I would like to say I am definitely, like, lean more towards open-minded than not. And I catch myself when I speak to my daughter, I say stuff about boys and then I'll catch myself and go, I mean, or anyone right. that you are interested in, you know, and I, and, mm-hmm. I, and I even catch myself, you know, and having to, to correct my language and my right. narrative when I speak to them about people they're interested in. So I can only imagine what it's like for, for households and families who don't have that, mm-hmm. yeah. who don't but, direct yeah. Atlanta Poly yeah. weekend. You know what I mean? To like, who don't. But that's exactly <laughs> my point. Right? Think about how hard grained the scripts that you read off of inside of you are. Yeah. yeah. That, to me, is why I'm suspicious of my idea of romantic love, because it comes from all the same places, comes from all of the same scripts. And when it tells me what I should be looking for, what I should be expecting, what I should be getting, what I ought to, what I deserve, what's owed me, in those contexts, I'm really concerned that it's way off base. Yeah. (laughs) You see the origin of your fear. I just think, as an adult, having had romance in my relationships, I just know how important Mm -hmm. it is to me. Well, hold on. Let's let's back up for a second. Let's let's, let's sidetrack for a second. You tell me what you mean by romance, because, again, I'm often going to suggest that simply changing words might be helpful in some contexts. Like, what is it about romance that appeals to you or that you like? And then I'll respond to that. Ways that my partner shows me I'm special, ways that he shows me he wants to spend time with me, that I'm important in his life, mm-hmm. his or her life. Sure. And I think that uh-huh. even in NRE, even even when you're experiencing that new relationship energy, that mm-hmm. that good morning text, you think about you're being thought about before that person even gets out of bed. It's the same thing when you're three or four years into a relationship, 10, 30, 40 years in, you know, what you're getting at, uh, Michael, is that it sets an example, it sets a standard, and that we eventually lose that, because we, mm-hmm. we do lose our NRE, um, and we fall into well, those my, other types my, of My love. issue with NRE, actually, is the opposite, which is it makes easy doing those things which ought be hard. The things that you're talking about that really signature long, sign, signal long-term, continual interest, investment, and uh, growth together are hard to do because they take so much energy and focus. Okay, so let me talk about a couple of my objectification concerns, because I think they're a little bit different than people are going to be thinking. This is from another article. Uh, This article is called Romantic Love, Enduring Love, and Authentic Love, and is by the author M.C. Dillon in 1983. We talked in an earlier podcast about how I don't make promises to people anymore. That after the last relationship I had before before I started dating my current primary partner, I had a lot of things where I made promises to them because they asked me to, and then fulfilling those promises hurt both of us. And I couldn't help but feel like I had to fulfill them because I said that I would. Mm -hmm. 
I, I figured out something was bad about that, and I figured out I didn't want to do that again, but I didn't spend enough time thinking about why until much later. And I think this is just a better quote than I'm going to come up with, so I'm going to use it. Promising in general, as Nietzsche points out, is an act of rendering oneself calculable. It is an act of future self-definition. In defining myself, I delimit myself. I say of my future self something of what or where or how it will be. So this is that sense of objectification where you become object-like. Mm -hmm. So objects are determinate. My headphones make music for me. And if they don't, I'm mad at them. Mm -hmm. But my wife doesn't right. make dinner for me. And if she doesn't, I'm mad at her because she's a human being. We hope you're not mad at her if she doesn't do that. I was going to say, I hope she's not in the room. But when you do that, that's objectification. <laughs> the reason you're mad at that person is because right. they failed your sense of what their object property was. Mm -hmm. Correct. A lot of romance, at least in America, is built around promising. So, like, I promise I'll see you tonight, or I promise I'll make time for this, or I'll promise I'll do this th chore for you. Or, like, all those promises you make during a wedding. That's what I was thinking. Right. Or promises forever. during a wedding. <laughs> I promise right? you my forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is super objectifying. You're making, and this is the kind of uh, this is the kind of objectifying that, in many cases, is the worst. It's self-objectifying, and it's a self-objectifying as a trade, right? And so I'm gonna, this is the second quote by that same uh, M.C. Dillon: uh, "Through the vow of true love, the lover invites his beloved to regard him as determined by the enduring property of loving her. He renders that part of his being determinate and tenders it." to the other, typically in exchange for a like act of self-determination and surrender of freedom. So basically, you make yourself an object so that the other person will make themselves an object so that you both feel like you control the other person and are safe. So you can exchange each other. Correct. And I think that applies as much in polyamory as it does in monogamy, because you can still promise to love someone forever as a polyamorist or as a non-monogamous mm -hmm. person. Absolutely. I'm just saying that because I know this is from a time period that didn't have polyamory in it, but I think concerns about objectification and romance are identical here. He also raises concerns about how, and this is a common idea for existentialism, the problem that existentialism has with objectification is that it's a negation, and it's a negation of what's true. When I say, I'll love you forever, I'm negating the possibility that I might not love you mm -hmm. in the future. And that's sort of how you can tell things objectifying, is it has these negations. But this one's also interesting because it also sort of negates the very thing that it claims to be giving you. Because if I know for sure that you must love me forever and I must love you forever, then you start taking it for granted. Mm -hmm. yeah. You don't get up in the morning and think, do I need to send them a text message at 7 a.m. to show them how I feel about them today? You go, they right. already know. We promised that we'd be together forever. Right. I gave her a ring. <laughs> yeah. And we stood up and exchanged vows. <laughs> I gave her an object to promise my objectification. <laughs> oh, the irony. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, and, and you know, and promises of true love in, in our culture are really crazy. A lot of times they're considered literally eternal, like it'll outlast mountains. Like if you believe in an afterlife, that sort of thing, and you claim true love into immortality. Mm -hmm. You're giving a level of promise and objectification to something that goes beyond even object permanence. Like you can't even be like, these mountains will be here forever. They won't. But you'll be like, my love will be here forever. <laughs> you know, right. and it's such a disingenuine... <laughs> In the, uh, in, again, in the existentialist sense, disingenuine means not truthful, whether you are hiding from the truth or not. So disingenuine usually means you're hiding from your own truth. It's like, you know you can't 
maintain the vow of eternal love. But it sounds that's so an unrealistic good. vow at some level. Whether it's might not it might not be sort of a conscious level, but you know it even at some unconscious level. And by doing that, you're objectifying yourself, and you tend to be objectifying your partner because you usually do that only in trade, which is why he'll get so mad if you say like, you know, I love you, and they don't say I love you back. Mm. That love is this self-objectifying promise that you do for the trade, and then they don't trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, and that's a that's a perfect. I mean, like, I don't know that you could have given a better example of when you say I love you to someone and you, you absolutely expect them to say it back. It is, it's, it's such a common trade in relationships that you immediately think something's wrong if you don't get that back instead of, um, you know, they may just be busy. (laughs) I can definitely remember being in a relationship with someone I said I love you to and they would not say it back to me because he wasn't a hundred percent sure that that's what mm-hmm. he was feeling. And he didn't want to set that bar right. and then go, Ooh, my bad. Looking back on it now, like that was the most caring and loving thing he could have done at the time. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't enough for me. Like that was absolutely not enough for me at the time. That was my goal was to get those three words mm-hmm. out of him. Yeah, mm-hmm. I understand that. I mean, and that's essentially our our goals in modern relationships is to get those three words. You've hit some type of stepping stone. Right. And that's exactly the concern. Right. Yeah. Like, because the reason you want those three words, at least the way that we've been taught, isn't for how those three words say, at this moment, I'm feeling an emotional content. It's for how those three words are a pre-written 45-page promise that yep. our culture has scripted us into understanding. Right. Yeah. And like I said, and seeing that now in hindsight, it's this it's the ladder of a relationship yep. that most mononormative relationships follow. And which most polyamorous relationships follow, which is why we were talking about questioning the scripts that you learned before you became non monogamous polyamorous. Yeah, I would agree with that too. Did you want to say something, Sarah? It seemed like you were gonna say um, something a couple well, times. Well I was thinking that um, I personally actually hate coming out and saying I love you because there is this expectation that they are to say I love you back or something's wrong. So I feel like if I say it, then the other person gets into panic for not being the object of my romance and what I'm what I'm looking for mm-hmm. in them. And that's not what I mean when I say it. When I say it, it's just like a genuine like... Mm-hmm. I, as a human, love you as a human, and I want to show you that and tell you that I appreciate you in that way. And so I actually really, saying I love you is really daunting to me when it comes to the first time because of the objectification of romance and love. I've had experiences where I've done that with a whole bunch of sort of couching language and then the person hasn't wanted to see me because they felt like I had too much emotion attached to them already. Mm -hmm. And I I, I didn't have the kind of language I have now because now I would say something like, I'm experiencing eros for you, right? And, 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 and I'm hoping that one day I could have Storge. Right. Yeah. Well, and so I guess this all comes to the sort of the head of my thought about good romance, bad romance. For me, the difference between those two is mostly expectation. Okay. So if you expect a person to give you things as opposed to being grateful for the things the person gives you. Right. Mm-hmm. Then I'm concerned about how your romance has veered into objectification. So if you find yourself being mad at somebody for failing a romantic obligation, I'm concerned that you've moved into objectification. I wouldn't even go as far as to say mad. I would say disappointed that it's not happening. Well, I have a hard time saying disappointed that it's not happening, and here's why. At a certain point, you know, if you say something like you can't even be disappointed that you're not getting the romance that you want or that you feel like you need to maintain your emotional 
interest in a relationship, it makes it feel like you don't have the, you you become the kind of object that isn't supposed to break up with anyone ever. Don't even don't even be disappointed if they don't give you the things you need. I mean, I, I, okay, I guess I would step back and say that if the romance that you're in need of is an unspoken expectation, and that's a, a different kind of problem. But I'm not, even if you've communicated, you know, an expectation like. My uh, partner the other day, you know, didn't end up making dinner that she said she was going to make. And she said, is it okay that I didn't make dinner? And I said, I always assume you won't make dinner. You know, even if you tell me you'll make dinner, I just assume you won't. Yeah. And then if you do, I'm pleased. I love that perspective. I totally live on that perspective where I have, I had a friend in high school who was like, okay, if you walk around with rose-colored glasses on all the time, you take them off and everything is dull. However, if you look at the world in gray, you take off those glasses and everything is beautiful. So it's like everything that happens that is a positive is like, I'm, I'm just grateful that you're, you're here. I'm just grateful that you're a part of my life and I don't, I don't need anything else. And even like, I don't know where I'm going with this. Sure. <laughs> but be, because I know your partner, Michael, mm-hmm. I, I would assume that she did not take that in the way that I initially, like right off the cuff when you said it, I don't know if you heard me, I was like, ooh, yeah. like that kind of came off as rude. Mm-hmm. But I like, I, I would assume that, you know, because I do know a little bit about your partner that sure. she understood what you were saying because Michael. Mm-hmm. Well, but also because it was forgiving in that moment, right? She was coming to apologize that there wasn't food on the table and I was like, I got to handle it, it's fine. Because I assumed you right. wouldn't do it. Right. Um, but I, I, see, but, I see what you're saying. It sounds. Oh, yeah. It also is, is like communicating that you know what I don't have an expectation for you. Almost like you've been let down before, so you don't have that expectation well, now. But here's the thing: my partner is the perfect teacher for being non-objectifying. I think because the reason I used to get mad about those things is that I took those sentences as promises, and those promises and promises are just always objectifying. Mm-hmm. And then my anger was that the object didn't live up to its object property. If you think of a person as a living possibility, you can't be mad that their possibility changed. Mm-hmm. Like, how would that even make sense? Yeah. It's not, it's not right. coherent. When you have that kind of anger about something not going the way that you've been told it's going to go from someone else, it's an objectifying act. Now, I will say that in some contexts, you may sometimes need to perform objectifying acts. And I'll, let me explain that. Like, let's say I have a life-threatening medical condition and I need you to check on me three times a day, and you promise to check on me three times a day, I need you to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I will be terrified and scared and get someone else to do that if you can't do that, because I need you to function in that case as an object, as we all do from time to time, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we have, we, we have to function as objects from time to time. If you find yourself feeling that way about day-to-day things, like who's making breakfast, who's doing, you know, this or that, then either they're actually significantly failing to meet enough of your needs that you can live your life, they're not reliable enough as a partner, or you're objectifying them, or probably both. But, you know, that, that, that's a different conversation, and I don't know that it's helpful for that conversation to come from a place of objectification so much as a place of needs and boundaries. No, I think that was a great test. I think that, that was a great, like, if this is happening, ask yourself, and that it's one of these two things. That was actually a really good Agreed. test. Thanks. Because I think that we're taught romance is objectification. And I think that's part of why objectification play is so popular in BDSM. It's the ultimate expression of all of the romance scripts you've ever had. Hmm. Oh, maybe, yeah. You will, tomorrow at 2 o'clock, show up and do this task for me. And then they do. And you're like, oh, so objectifying. <laughs> <laughs> you know. For context here, Michael just like put his fists and arms in the air and did a little dance. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did. 
So, so you know, so of course that's exciting. If that's all of your scripts are around around subtle, implicit objectification, being able to just come out and be like, act like an object, and that's what's romantic. It's not surprising that it's so popular mm -hmm. as an approach. So it's like with romance, we as a society view it as someone who is going to fill our needs as an object that is a person that is going to fill all of these needs for us. And in that way, that's the way we're objectifying them. It can be as simple as just having fulfilling a couple of needs. I think one significant act of objectification can be enough to be problematic. Of course. So I was going to say, I think, and this is something that I happen, I find happens a lot, and this is why I spend so much time boringly hammering language and definitions. I think for a lot of people it's boring, for me it's fascinating. Is <laughs> because in the end, Mandy and I, I don't think we disagreed on where romance or what you know she was calling romance and that I would have called something else is helpful and where it's harmful. We just lacked enough language to separate it clearly in a short conversation. Mm -hmm. So right. I'm like, oh man, but everyone that I know, when they look at the average usage of the word romance, it has all these promises built in, it's automatically promising, it talks about lasting forever, it talks about true love, it talks about all these other objectifying factors, and Mandy's going, I need someone who will still do the dishes in 10 years, and I'm going, okay, well that's good, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I don't know that I want to call that romance in the common sense. It is. I mean, once we agree to that, we can use that, you know. Right. I will say that um, Jerry and I discussed it after you and I discussed it, Michael, and he was so 110% on board with what you were saying. <laughs> nice. like, this, this is exactly how I think. Awesome. <laughs> so I was, oh, I was uh, alone in my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're not entirely alone. There will be people who listen to this that will be like, oh, yeah, Mandy. Mm-hmm. I side with well, her. Well, and I'm claiming that I'm actually on her side. We just yeah. had linguistic differences. Mandy and I keep having linguistic differences. We, yeah. None of that's a bad thing. That's really common. But we have a, a strong different sense of how a word is used. Because you are entirely too intelligent to have a normal <laughs> conversation with, Michael. I'm also very pessimistic. That's I'm also very problem. pessimistic. I like the worst version of a word. And I'm like, oh, wait, 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 wait. The worst version of the most common worst version of this is terrifying. <laughs> and you're like taking like the best version of the word. And I'm like, okay, well, I see the, I see the, the problem there. I feel like you sit around and you're like thinking about something and you almost panic. Oh my God, romance is so objectifying. And you like get your phone and you're like, Mandy, what about this? Romance is so objectifying. And <laughs> like you're almost shouting when you come at me and you're like, what do you think about this? And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, it's not. Calm down. It can be this and it can be that. And you're like, no, that's not the word. <laughs> Uh, as much as, you know, difference as language sort of has, the super short three-second version of what is a word is a word is actually an, an action. It has an effect on the world in causing other human beings to react. And we use words which consistently or enough have the reaction that we wanted them to have. I love that. The outcome we wanted them to have. So I am forced to focus or try to focus, at least for the point of podcasts, sort of intellectual rigor, writing, professional work on what effect the preponderance of people are going to be using a word to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I think most people are using the word romantic and love to accomplish this form of self-objectifying, co-objectifying, promising, expectation-creating language. That's what we're taught romance is. Mm -hmm. Correct. So if that's what we're taught romance is, then, you know, that's why I'm concerned about using that word. Like, I don't know that I would be like, I'm a romantic, right? Because, because I know that that's what most people are going to hear when I say that, which is different than I like to do things for my partners. I like to discover 
their love languages and provide for them in those spaces, you know, the things that I think I can do for them. I think a really neat poll would be like a word association. Give me the two first words that you think of when I say romance. Oh, let's Facebook that. Yep. <laughs> You're on that, I'm Sarah. On that. Give, uh, yeah, that's Sarah. I don't <laughs> I even know how to do a poll. I'm on that. But, you know what I'm saying? Like you're going to get roses. You're going to get music. You're, you're going to get dancing. You're going to get candle lights. You know, it's like no, no, no. That's... I'm going to take the poll and put objectification and impossible promises. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to be way at the other end of that spectrum. Where you're like bullshit and <laughs> NRE. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Objectification and NRE. That's actually right. That's actually right. right. I think those are the things I hear when I hear ro- like ro- love, oh, romance, language. Right. And that was kind of where we were when we were having the discussion mm-hmm. is yeah. he thinks of that that way. But my definition of romance was so different that I yeah. thought of the positives. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of where we had the two sides that we were coming from, where we completely agreed. Yeah. We were just talking about two different things. I mean, that's just also a lot of what I do. Like, I often just abandon words that have connotations I don't know how to deal with that other people have. So that's why I never use the words good and evil, but I use pro-social and anti-social to indicate, like, how much they help a community of people rather than make judgment calls about them. Mm -hmm. Which isn't to say that I think good and evil are useless words. I just rarely use them because I can't disconnect them from the millions of potential connotations they're associated to. So I I often err in that direction. So I'm like, I would rather leave off saying romance and use more specific words to describe what's happening here. So I know I'm, I'm, I'm getting the same idea. Yes. And I definitely think that we need to do a podcast in the future of how animated movies when we were young yes. screwed up our lives. Yes, I, I call it the princess syndrome. Oh my goodness, did I have yes. weird ideas. I remember when I first entered into like the romantic field when I was a teenager and I was like, why isn't everybody in love with me? I don't understand. If I like them, they're supposed to like me back. Yeah. yeah. I want to know where the damn bluebirds are Seriously. to clean my house. Yeah. That's... <laughs> When I had the, the, the prince problem, I would walk up to someone, instead of doing all the stuff that my friends were doing, like where they'd invite them out to movie as friends, as a group of friends, and sort of work towards dating them, I would walk up and be like, I find you attractive. Would you like to go on a date, dare maid? And they'd be like, that's creepy as shit. Get away from me. And uh, then I didn't get any dates for a really long time. So for sure, no. But I, I don't know. I, I think that's territory that the people have been over with a backhoe. I mean, you can Google, like, Belle is uh, absolutely... Um, Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome, and everything's super objectifying like sleeping beauty is just oh i love her because she's pretty and i'm gonna then kiss her without her consent while she's unconscious and then she has to be my wife when she wakes up well by the way if have you ever read the real version of sleeping beauty i have not but i've never thought of the implications of the disney version oh my god oh really you've you've not sir i i've never (laughs) maybe i did at one point forever ago but like in the real version (laughs) of that story he rapes her he does not kiss her and she wakes up during childbirth Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Why did we <laughs> So like... I think that we're just now getting good quality <laughs> movies for our kids. Like right. Moana. Right. Totally yeah. watched yeah. Moana and was like, You go girl, that's a great one. I want my kid to watch that one. What's crazy to me though is that like Disney and the people with him read that story and went, This is a good model for what relationships should look like. Mm-hmm. But let's clean it up a little so people don't get mad. But those yeah. undertones are all still there. Yes. All the weird, rapey, murdery, objectifying, controlling undertones exist, even though they're not 
specified like they are in the original versions. Right. And in a sense, that makes them worse, because you don't just laugh at it. Like, it almost <laughs> makes sense to you as a child, because it's so pretty and dressed up and romanticized. See? When you say romanticized, it means extravagant right. over mm-hmm. the top. Perfect. Right. It makes it pink and smell like roses. Do you want to do closing real quick before we just start chatting? Yeah, and this time, you know, let's all say goodbye instead of just me by myself. <laughs> <laughs> but that works But it's so, so funny well. to see you sitting there just, you know, <laughs> Sadly and... saying goodbye, yeah. quietly, awkwardly by myself in a corner. Thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you, Mandy, for being on the show again. Yes, thank you, Mandy, again. You're awesome. You're very welcome. Next time, we're going to be doing the first listener question-based show. So we have that to look forward to, which is very exciting. Yes, thank you again for for tuning in. We appreciate each and every one of you. And please feel free to message me or Michael with any questions, concerns, or just just to say hi. I'm I'm not the best at correspondence, but I'll message you back eventually. (laughs) And I want to thank you both for having me again. I have so much fun hanging out with the both of you. All right. All right. See everyone next time. See ya. Bye.